0: This morning, we're going to look at one of my favorite parables. Uh, these are actually a, a set of parable twins in Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. And I think it's safe to say that these are m- my favorite parable twins, anyways. And the theme that comes out of the, these two parables is really something that I'm passionate about and excited about. And so open your Bibles to Matthew 13. Let's Begin by looking at the text today. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had And bought it. In these two parables, the kingdom is presented as something extremely valuable. And in both, the finder sold everything to acquire this treasure. Now that might be surprising because last week in the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, what was the kingdom compared to there? It was was compared to something that was insignificant, The smallest of garden seeds or a a piece of fermenting dough that was set aside for the, the next day's batch of bread. And so in one sense, the kingdom is insignificant, but in another way, it's extremely valuable. And last week when we looked at the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, we saw that the insignificance there was connected to its beginnings. The kingdom program in this age really began with just a handful of disciples. They weren't learned. They weren't mighty men. They were just kind of common men. They were rejected men. Even as their master was rejected, in the world's eyes, uh, this Messiah was not worthy to be called Messiah. This kingdom, which was to fulfill and or fill the whole earth, was was going to begin unexpectedly in a, in a small way but eventually we learned that it would reach its full potential even as a tiny mustard seed grows into the largest of the garden plants or even as a piece of, of fermenting dough a, a little piece of fermenting dough and that leaven eventually works its way through the whole batch but now we're we're kind of going to look at another aspect of the kingdom another aspect of the kingdom program and we're going to see its value What is the kingdom worth? But before we get there, we have work to do because we need to figure out what part of the kingdom we're talking about here. What is it about the kingdom program in this age that is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up and then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys it? Or what is it about the kingdom program that's like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it? And to answer that, let's begin by looking at the parable itself or the parables themselves. And that's number one in your outline, the parables, in verses 44 to 46. And really, both times we go through this, we're just going to go through the whole section. But always with parables, the place to start is to understand the main point or the main points of the story, and we need to stay on the natural level. We need to just think about the story, the narrative itself. And so what is the kingdom like? Well, it's like treasure. It's like treasure. Treasure refers to the place where something is kept for safekeeping, or as we have here, it's the the things that are kept safe. That which is stored for safekeeping, that is treasure. That's what the word means. And this word is used 17 times in the New Testament. It was used in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, when the wise men came to worship the baby Jesus, and it says they're opening their treasures, they offered to him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Jesus used that word when he compared treasures on earth with treasures in heaven. Our heart would be set on what we treasure, he said in that context, what we value. That was Matthew 16, 19, 20, 21. And again, we see that same kind of idea in Matthew chapter 19 when it speaks about the rich young ruler. And Jesus bids him to sell his possessions and have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And again, that word's used in the parallel passages in Mark and Luke. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, Paul spoke of the gospel messenger of knowing Christ as this treasure. And so 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3, it tells us that, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in Hebrews eleven twenty six. It talks about Moses and tells us that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And so treasure, this word in the New Testament is used for literal treasure, but most often and and more often it's used for either our heavenly reward or for Christ himself or for knowing him. But here in the parable, we're not jumping to the spiritual meaning yet. Here in the parable, we're just looking at treasure. And we just have treasure here, simply buried treasure. Buried treasure. Now, buried treasure might kind of seem odd to us. It's it's very rare that we would come across buried treasure. But we need to remember that this is a a time before banks. And uh, people didn't have really banks that they could rely on to keep their money secure. And even money wasn't paper money like we have today, but it was metal coins that wouldn't rust. And so the safest place to keep treasure, to keep money, would be to bury it in the ground, bury it in a secret place. In fact, in the parable of the talents, I believe it's Matthew twenty-five twenty-five, we see there in that parable that one of the, the servants just buried his money in the ground. It was a common thing to do. The safest place to keep treasure would be to bury it in the ground. And if you did that, you'd want to keep it secret because you wouldn't want other people to know where that was so that they could dig it up and steal your treasure. But if you kept it too secret, let's say you're heading off to war or you're, you're going on a long journey and you bury your treasure in the field, but you, you don't tell anyone and you never return from that journey, then there'd be lost treasure in the ground. And so in our parable, a man found just such a treasure and he found it and he covered it up again. Now perhaps he was plowing the field or maybe the treasure was uncovered maybe by a storm or whatever. We don't really know. It doesn't really matter. But the laws of that time would have said that if, if, if you found such a treasure buried, you could keep it if you, if you lifted it out of the ground. There was some kind of a, a, a thing about just lifting it. It was kind of like a, a finder's keeper's kind of a law. But if you were working somebody else's land and you lifted it out of the ground, then you were acting on behalf of the landowner and the treasure would rightfully belong to them. And so this man apparently doesn't lift the treasure out of the ground. He doesn't remove the treasure. He covers it up again and he doesn't disclose the treasure to the owner. Now, apparently, if, if I was gonna sell a piece of land with buried treasure in that day, I would have to disclose that the, the sale didn't include the treasure and that I was gonna dig that up. But the parable is not really concerned at all with the details of the transaction. The parable isn't concerned with the ethics of the man. It's kinda strange that he hides it, but then yet, he does buy the field. He doesn't, he doesn't just steal the treasure. But it's not concerned at all about the ethics of this situation. If it's lawful to cover the treasure again, none of that's in view at all. What seems to be in view is that this treasure was quite significant. The man recognized its worth and he, he went to great length to secure this treasure for himself. Look again then at the second sentence in verse 44. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The treasure is so great that the man sold all that he had. He sells all to buy the field and to get the treasure. And he's not at all sad when he sells everything. He's, he's not at all disappointed by it. He goes with joy and he liquidates all his assets with joy. And so what does that tell us about the treasure? What does that tell us about the treasure? It must have been more valuable than whatever he had. It must have been more valuable than everything that he had. And it must have not been just even a little bit more valuable. It must have been more than worth it that the man would have such joy as he gets rid of everything that he owns. His joy tells us that it was worth it, that the, there was a, that this was valuable treasure to him that there's no comparison between his all and this treasure. In fact, the Greek text is is really extremely vivid here. And and literally, if we were going to translate this very literally, we would say, and from the joy of it, he is going and he is selling all that he is having and he is buying that field. And so it's all in the present tense. And so Jesus puts it in the present tense to kind of bring us right into the scene as if we were there and we were watching the man and he's going and he's selling and he's buying and he's joyful as he does it all. And so we see this man with joy taking all of these actions and he's doing all of these things joyfully to secure this treasure for himself. Now the second parable seems to have the same main idea. Something valuable is found, and everything is sold to acquire that thing. And this time, we're dealing with pearls. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, this man doesn't stumble upon the treasure. He's seeking pearls. He's a a merchant, this merchant is seeking fine pearls, he's he's searching, he's looking for these, he, he probably has a, a buyer lined up to sell such pearls to. Pearls were extremely valuable in the ancient Near East and they were really one of the only gems that were available at the time. And so if you wanted a, a beautiful gem, really a pearl was a great choice. Diving for them was dangerous work, difficult work before scuba suits and snorkels and flippers, and so it was a, a dangerous job to get them. But there was always people in search of pearls, beautiful pearls. But anyway, this merchant he finds one of great value, and and great value is Polytimos. Polytimos and Paulus there means means many or a great number or much or. As here, it means something that pertains to being high on a scale of extent. And tamao or, or time is, is something that's valuable, something that's, that's honored or, or the, the price of something. And so this Temos is, is this idea of something being very high on a monetary scale. And so these pearls are of great value, very precious valuable pearls I want you to turn to 1 Peter where a, another version of this same word is used go to 1 Peter chapter 1 in uh in English if I want to say something is is greater. I kind of, you know, you add an ending, and and the same thing happens with Greek if you want to make a comparison. And so the comparative form of this word is used here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Starting at verse 6, though, let's look at that. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Peter compares the tested genuineness of your faith with gold that perishes. And he says there that it's more precious than gold. That's the same word that we have when we, in our text, translated greater value. See genuine faith doesn't perish and it's testing but one day gold will perish. But but what we want to see here is is this. Peter uses that same word from our text translated great value, but he uses it here to compare gold to faith. And true faith is of greater value, translated here again more precious than gold. And so faith that endures through trials is going to result in praise and glory and honor at or when Christ is revealed. God is going to be glorified, and and that is more valuable than gold. And so our merchant, he found a pearl of great value, one that's, that's more valuable than all that he had. Now, there's no mention of of joy for him. Perhaps our, our merchant were to think of him as just kind of being a strictly business kind of guy. And he calmly runs the numbers and he says, this one's more valuable. I'm going I'm to take this one. And the story here is told less vividly than the first story. It's not in the present tense. It's just a, a matter of fact. These things happened. He went, he sold all that he had, and he bought the pearl. Now, I used to wonder about this this uh, foolish fellow, this homeless man with nothing but a pearl. But again, we're, we're not meant to fill out the rest of the story like that. Just as we're not concerned about the legality of, of covering the treasure and buying a field, so we're not to be concerned about how this merchant is going to live with nothing but a pearl. You know, perhaps he's just going to sell it for much more than he bought it for, but it doesn't really matter. It, what matters in the parable is the great value of the pearl. It was worth more than all his other pearls. It was worth more than everything else that the man owned. And so both parables have the same main point. Something of great value is found which warrants the sale of everything else in order to acquire it. A comparison is made between a treasure and all that one owns. And the treasure is greater so that all is given up. In the one case, it's even given up with joy, but in both, the decision was made to give up all to get the treasure that was discovered. And so let's go now to kind of move on to talk about what this means. And this is number two in your outline. When I called it the principles, so we saw the parables. Now let's look at the principles, and we're just going to kind of draw out from this what this text is teaching. Somehow... The kingdom is like what we've seen in our parables. Something about the kingdom is extremely valuable and worth giving up all. Now, last week, we saw again that in another sense, something about the kingdom was insignificant. And we said that from a human perspective, this great kingdom work would start small, but that it would end great. The few disciples that Jesus gathered would, would have seemed insignificant. They were despised and they were rejected like their master. In Acts 4.13, the leaders of Israel marveled at the boldness of Peter and and John, and the text says there in Acts 4.13 that they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And so through these uneducated common men, the Lord was going to build his church, and he was going to save a people to populate the kingdom. Now, we've been saying through this kind of series through Matthew 13 that the kingdom is future, except in this one sense that right now we can join this kingdom by repenting and believing the gospel. And so if you're still in Matthew 13, those who are saved in this age are called sons of the kingdom in Matthew 13, 38. They're called sons of the kingdom. And these sons are waiting for the kingdom to come. And and one day, if you look at Matthew 13 and verse 43 says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And so these sons of the kingdom are waiting for the coming kingdom and that day when we are going to shine like the sun in the kingdom of our father. And notice again there that these sons of the kingdom are called the righteous. We are the righteous and they were the good soil. If we want to think about the parable of the soils. They heard the message of the kingdom, they understood that message, they accepted that message, and they were saved, and they indeed bear fruit. And part of this fruit is righteousness, holy living. And what I'm getting at here is that there's something about all this that is like a treasure. Is it the future kingdom when we're going to shine like the sun? Is that the treasure? Is it being a son of the kingdom? Is that the treasure is it the salvation that makes us sons and makes us righteous and delivers us out of the realm of the evil one whose sons we were perhaps we could even get more specific and ask if the treasure is not jesus himself again colossians 2 verse 3 in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge or perhaps the treasure is god himself after all, Jesus is the image of God, and he's the one who shows us the Father and reconciles us to the Father. And our whole aim and purpose of life as Christians, as, as really people on this planet, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever as a treasure. And so there's any number of treasures that kind of tie into the kingdom theme. We have the kingdom of heaven and its full future glory, our eternal reward, We have our present salvation that prepares us for that kingdom. We have our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose reproach is greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt at the height of her glory. And we have God himself, the treasure of treasures, the one we will worship forever in heaven in this eternal kingdom. And so the question is, well, how do we decide amongst all of these treasures, how do we decide what this parable is speaking of? How do we make a decision like this? Well, last week with the mustard seed and the leaven, we said that that we need to be careful not to get too specific about the identity of the insignificant aspect of the kingdom. And on the other hand, not to get too specific about the the growth of the kingdom. It's too much weight to to bear for this one parable. And I think that same principle should apply here as well. We shouldn't get overly specific specific <laughs> on either side of this thing i get excited i just, just want to say it faster than humanly possible um at least for this human uh I, I don't think we should get overly specific on either side what what is this treasure specifically well it's the kingdom and that includes i would say it includes entering it by salvation and everything that is ours through jesus christ and on the other side, what is the all that must be sold? And again, we have to be careful here too. You know, we don't buy salvation like a merchant. We don't earn salvation by anything that we do. And yet Jesus can say in Luke 14, So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And he said that we need to lose our lives for his sake. And what this parable teaches then is, is a comparison. And it's a comparison between the value of the kingdom and all that one has through it compared to everything else without the kingdom. And so what we're going to do is we're going to explore both sides of this comparison. And we're going to start with what one has to give up to enter the kingdom. And so let's think about this in, in the terms of what do we need to lose Or what must we give up? Or what do we need to sell if we kind of put it in the parable? What is this all that we're to sell? And what we're going to do is we're going to mostly stick with what Matthew says. We could go kind of all over Scripture, but let's just stick with what Matthew has said about it for now. Now, I've already mentioned in the context here the parable of the sower. And it showed us someone who was in the kingdom and, and someone who was saved, and they were somebody who understood the message of the kingdom in such a way that it changed their life. And remember the opposites in that context of the parable of the sower. In one case, Satan had snatched the word of God away from that person's heart so that they did not understand and they were not changed and they bore no fruit. In another case, the person didn't receive the message in such a way that they were willing to suffer for it. And they bore no fruit. And then in the third case, uh, this person was, was overcome with the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and those choked the word so that they bore no fruit. And so what we saw there was that a true believer overcomes the world, the flesh, and the devil by grace, not by their own power, but by grace so that they do bear fruit and the word of God impacts their life. And the power of the new birth and the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the word of God changes this person's life. And such a person is going to increasingly put off chasing what the world offers. And they're going to live for the Lord and they're going to increasingly be willing to suffer for the Lord on account of his word. And they're going to increasingly reject Satan and his ways. And they're going to reject sin and live more and more righteously in this age. Now I say here increasingly because it's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be evident and there's going to be growth as such a one learns the word of God. And so here's what must be given up then, according to this kind of these verses, is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this is what we call repentance. Repentance, turning from sin. You know, there must be a turning away from sin if you would enter into the kingdom, and there must be a turning towards God. There must be repentance. There must be a willingness to do His will. And with it, giving up whatever you did before that wasn't his will. Now, the Sermon on the Mount showed us the kind of person who would enter the kingdom. And it showed us what Jesus meant when he began to preach in Matthew 4 and verse 17, when he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in that Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus laid out for us how he wants us to live, how he requires us to live as citizens of his kingdom. And the key word there was righteousness. And so from that we can draw that unrighteousness must be abandoned. Unrighteousness must be given up. And we could even think of Jesus as the new Moses there on the mountain giving the law to his disciples. This law wasn't something that they needed to do in order to be saved, but only by grace could one keep such a law. And and even this law in the Sermon on the Mount contains the reality that we're going to fail and we're going to need forgiveness. And so we pray for forgiveness daily. But Jesus does demand obedience in the Sermon on the Mount. After the introduction, and you could go there, Matthew chapter 5, after the introduction of the sermon, Matthew, uh, Jesus says... Matthew 5:19 He says whoever therefore or therefore whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven Now these commandments there I believe refer to these commandments that Jesus gives in the sermon now, we must not relax one of the least of these commandments or teach others to do so. Otherwise, we will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And then if we look at the end of the sermon, and, and I often have people memorize these verses in, in counseling, look at the end of the sermon, Matthew seven twenty four. Jesus says, in conclusion, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, what does that have to do with the cost? Well, we could put it this way, I think. It will cost you your disobedience. You have to get rid of your disobedience if you're going to follow Jesus Christ. If you want the treasure, you're going to have to sell your disobedience. You're going to have to sell all of it and follow the Lord. When Jesus called Peter and John and and their brothers, they, they literally left everything and followed after him. Look at Matthew 4 and verse Now, these men were called to be apostles, but we saw in chapter 10, and you can turn to Matthew chapter 10 now, that really all of us, if we're disciples of Christ, all of us are to take up the mission of bringing the gospel to the world. And of course, Matthew ends his gospel, Matthew 28, 18, 19, 20, he ends with the great commission, go to all nations, make disciples, baptize and teach. And as we do this, Jesus warned that we would be hated and persecuted, even family would rise against us. And so in Matthew 10 and verse 16, Jesus says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Look at verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes." Now, we're not to fear this in verse 26. We're not to think in verse 34 that Jesus came to bring peace to earth. And all of this shows us that, that we might have to give up very much indeed if we're going to take this treasure. Look at verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so we could lose our family, our friends, our comfort, our peace. We could lose our life. We could lose a lot. There could be a lot of cost for hearing Jesus's words and doing them. There could be a lot of cost. Another passage that shows us the cost is Matthew chapter 19. We haven't got there yet, but let's turn there now. Matthew chapter 19, the rich rich ruler. The rich ruler wouldn't pay the price. He wouldn't give up the world to follow Jesus. And so in Matthew 19, 23 Jesus turns and and says to his disciples Truly I say to you only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven Again I tell you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God When the disciples heard this they were greatly astonished saying who then can be saved And so they're saying well, who can Who can be saved with this kind of standard that a rich person, it's hard for them to enter the kingdom. Verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. In other words, God is able to make somebody give up the world in order to follow Jesus Christ and be saved. And so God is able to do this thing. God can put a camel through the eye of a needle. God can save a rich person and, and make them willing to give up all. And then verse 27, I, I just love Peter. He's, see that we have left everything and followed you. What will we have? He's heard about the reward. He wants to know what is my reward? What's coming up for me, Lord? Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you in the new world, When the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for My namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. This passage is important in in a whole lot of ways, but it's important because it shows us the connection between the kingdom and salvation entering the kingdom the disciples rightly recognize in verse 25 that that has to do with salvation who then can be saved it shows us the cost as well as the benefits it shows us the cost that that one must give up the world to follow the lord jesus one must give up all idols must give up everything to follow after him it also shows us the reward, positions of service when Jesus sits on his glorious throne in the kingdom, and whatever we, we lose now will be rewarded then, and not only that, we will inherit eternal life. And so the first disciples, they left everything to follow Jesus and, and really were to do the same. Look at another passage in Matthew chapter 16, look at verse 24. We're thinking about the cost what must be given up to follow Jesus. Matthew 16:24 then Jesus told his disciples if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Again, the cost might be great. We are to lose our lives for Jesus' sake. But to bring this back to the parable, we we need to kind of go to the other side, and we need to make a comparison now. Yes, we sell all, we give up all, we we must give up all, we must give up sin and the world and the devil and disobedience, even our family and friends, our comforts, our very lives, we sell all, but we need to consider what we gain, we need to consider the other side of the deal here. What makes this a good deal? What, what makes it a joy to do so? And we can really begin right here in Matthew sixteen twenty four. Instead of forfeiting our soul, instead of losing our soul, the Lord tells us we are going to gain it. You see, Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Jesus is the only way to the forgiveness of our sins. He's the only way to be made righteous in God's sight, like we sang about this morning, His robes for mine. Otherwise, our souls are lost in hell forever. And through Jesus Christ, our souls are saved. Through faith alone, we are connected to this risen Lord Jesus so that his righteousness is counted as ours. And without a perfect righteousness, which no man has or can have, and without this perfect righteousness, then we cannot have fellowship with the holy God. And so Jesus asked, what would a man give in exchange for his soul. How about a temporary time in this world? How about how about your life now for eternal life then? In other words, it's it's logical to give up this life for eternal life for our soul. But there's really so much more that we gain than just eternal life. Look at verse 25 again. It says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Christian disciple is one who lives for Jesus' sake. We live for him. And it's really a response to all that he is and all that he's done for us and for our souls. You know, if he died for us, then it really follows that we should give our lives to serve him. If He is God the Son who took on human flesh, uh, and, and He is fully God and fully man, one divine person with two natures, then He is worthy of our lives. There's no greater person to live for than Jesus Christ. There's no higher end than to serve Him and to do all that we do for Him and for His sake. He is Lord. And it's not merely enough to say so. We must live it in our daily actions and priorities. And when we live for Him, when we live for His sake, which is really the the highest thing in life again, when we live for Him, we are loving Him. And so we're not ashamed to be called those who love God or to say with Paul, the love of Christ controls us. And to say that we love Him is really to say that He's our treasure. That He's the pearl of great value which we gladly give up all in order to have. See, the Apostle Paul had this mindset in Philippians chapter 3 and you could turn there if you wanted. He spoke there about the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul wanted to know Him even to the extent of of sharing in his sufferings. He wanted to know Christ in the midst of sufferings. He says in verse chapter 3, verse 7, "...but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ." And this is what our parable teaches, counting everything loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's desire was simply to be found in him, to know him, to serve him, to live for him. This is true Christianity. It's not just some decision you made. It's not some prayer you prayed. True Christianity is a supernatural work of God that opens your eyes to the glory and worth of Jesus Christ. And we take him as a treasure. We see in him the glory of God. We see the we we see it so that we become worshipers of God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's true Christianity. And from this we see that that God himself is also a treasure. So that our desire is to glorify God in our body 1 Corinthians 6:20. And the believer is one whose prayer is hallowed be your name Matthew 6:9. And we do good works for him so that people might see us and recognize him and give glory to our Father in heaven. Matthew 5.16. We serve him because we've come to see his worth, his value, and, and now we, we love him and we devote ourselves to him. Matthew 6.24. And so, brothers and sisters, this is our treasure. This great God, his Son, Jesus Christ, the fact that we can serve them and, and live our lives for them as an act of worship. Our salvation is a treasure that comes from God and from his son and from the Holy Spirit. And even the fact that, that we're going to be rewarded for what we do in this life, all of this is a treasure that we look forward to. And this treasure cannot be compared to what we give up. Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We're going to find life as we give up our lives to live for this great God who is our treasure. Now, maybe you're here today and you don't know the Lord is a treasure. One who's worth giving everything up for. And I invite you today to look at this great God who spoke this amazing world into existence He made a plan to save sinners by the death of his son. Look to Jesus, who loved so much that he came and died to save poor, wretched sinners like you and like me. And so look to Jesus and follow him and be saved today. Give your life for him. He is more than worthy. And if you're here today and you're in Christ, I want you to remember his worth. Take your eyes off of the difficulties. Take your eyes off of the costs of following him and set your eyes back on him. Remember the joy of finding the treasure. Remember the joy of discovering Jesus Christ and his greatness. Remember the privilege of serving so great a master. Remember that following him and living for his sake is better than 10,000 worlds without him. And remember that he said that he will never leave us or forsake us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this treasure that you are. And oh, we wish we could preach it the way that it deserves, Father. But we know from your word that you are a treasure and your son is a treasure. We thank you that that you have allowed us to discover the treasure, that you have opened our eyes by divine grace to see your greatness and to desire to live for you. And Father, we want to live for you more. We all recognize that we fall short in this area. We pray you'd forgive us, but we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would motivate us. We pray that you would even once again open our eyes to see you for the treasure that you are and to give up sin and Satan, and the world, and the desires of our flesh to give up our lives, and really everything, our disobedience, to give up all to serve you, Father, is really a privilege that we don't deserve. And so we pray that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation today, take our eyes off of some of these costs that have been really in the forefront, and, and set us back On you, Lord Jesus, we pray it. We pray it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.